Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 279 of Forgotten Classics, where we will finish Murray Leinster's tale of policemen in space, a matter of importance. First, though, let me tell you about the podcast highlight. This is a podcast I discovered fairly early on, although I believe it's only five episodes in right now. It's called The Black Tapes Podcast. It is, in a way, an homage to that podcast serial, which I never listened to, (laughs) but I have heard so many people saying this is an homage to the style of serial, which is, you know, a journalist or a radio host interviewing different people and putting the story together for us so we can follow it. This, though, is not based on anything real. It's kind of like a combination between Serial or This American Life or one of those that is realistic with Welcome to Night Vale. In that, in this realistic type of a setting, what we're given are these really crazy horror stories. So the idea is that there's a journalist whose name is Alex Regan who is investigating a ghost hunter. Dr. Richard Strand, and he doesn't believe in ghosts. So this makes him an interesting subject, right? And the idea is that as she's investigating these, in his office, she sees all these videotapes in white cases. And he says, oh, those are ones I solved. And she happens to open a door. And here are some videotapes in black cases. He says, well, those are ones I haven't solved yet. I will solve them, but not yet. So he starts sharing with her what is on these different tapes. And so each episode, once you get past the introduction, is the paranormal thing that he couldn't solve. So these are the things that are increasingly creepy. And at the same time, he's, you know, supposedly very out there, very transparent, but he's told her a lie and she catches it. And so then she starts investigating Dr. Strand a little more. And so the bigger story arc is what is up with Dr. Richard Strand. Very interestingly done, really great because you've got this basic mystery and then you've got all these creepy paranormal ghost stories. And it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy listening. I can't listen to more than one in a row though because I will get kind of creeped out. But as each episode ends and she finds out a little bit more about Dr. Strand, I'm also left going, oh my gosh, I need the next one. That was crazy. So I wanted to let you know, this is perfect for anybody who enjoys weird tales, horror stories, and they make it sound as if it's real. But after, gosh, I can't remember if it was the second or third one. I think it was the third one where I was kind of suddenly thinking, you know, if this is real, I'd be totally creeped out right now. So I looked up a couple of facts, so-called facts, from the podcast, and no, they were not real at all, as I thought. But it was reassuring. (laughs) So anyway, I'll put a link at the blog for the podcast, of course. But honestly, if you go to iTunes and type in Black Tapes Podcast, it's going to pop right up. Now, back to our story where Murray Leinster is taking us on the tale of helping out a stranded spaceship. And humans don't really use the Navy or the military anymore. They use cops. Causes a lot less trouble. And what it does is it makes for a great story. We're halfway through, 
So if you haven't heard it up to now, go listen to the last episode and we're going to finish it up here. Let's dive in and I'll meet you on the other side. On the way over, in overdrive, Sergeant Madden again dozed a great deal of the time. Sergeants do not fraternize extensively with mere patrolmen, even on assignments. Especially not very senior sergeants, only two years from retirement. Patrolman Willis met with the sergeant's approval, to be sure. Timmy was undoubtedly more competent as a cop, but Timmy would have been in a highly emotional state with his girl on the Cerberus, and that ship in the hands of the Hucks. Between naps, the sergeant somnolently went over what he knew about the alien race. He'd heard that their thumbs were on the outside of their hands. Intelligent non-humans would have to have hands, and some equivalent of opposable thumbs if their intelligence was to be of any use to them. They pretty well had to be bipeds, too, and if they weren't warm-blooded... They couldn't have the oxygen supply that high-grade brain cells require. There were even certain necessary physiological facts. They had to be capable of learning and of passing on what they'd learned, or they'd never have gotten past an instinctual social system. To pass on acquired knowledge, they had to have family units in which teaching was done to the young, at least at the beginning. Schools might have been invented later. Most of all, their minds had to work logically to cope with a logically constructed universe. In fact, they had to be very much like humans in almost all significant respects in order to build up a civilization and develop sciences and splendidly to invade space just a few centuries before humans found them. But, said Sergeant Madden to himself, I bet they've still got armies and navies. Patrolman Willis looked at him inquiringly, but the sergeant scowled at his own thoughts. Yet the idea was very likely. When Hucks first encountered humans, they bristled with suspicion. They were definitely on the defensive when they learned that humans had been in space longer, much longer, than they had, and already occupied planets in almost 15% of the galaxy. Sergeant Madden found his mind obscurely switching to the matter of Delinks. Those characters who act like adolescents, not only while they are kids, but after. They were the permanent major annoyance of the cops, because what they did didn't make any sense. Learned books explained why people went to Link, of course. Mostly it was that they were madly ambitious to be significant, to matter in some fashion, and didn't have the ability to matter in the only ways they could understand. They wanted to drive themselves to eminence, and frantically snatched at chances to make themselves nuisances because they couldn't wait to be important any other way. Sergeant Madden blinked slowly to himself. When humans first took to space, a lot of them were after glamour, which is the seeming of importance. His son Timmy was on the cops because he thought it was glamorous. Patrolman Willis was probably the same way. Glamour is the offer of importance. An offer of importance is glamour. The sergeant grunted to himself. A possible course of action came into his mind. He and Patrolman Willis were on the way to the solar system Cyrene 1432, where Krishnamurti's law said there ought to be something very close to a Terran-type planet in either the third or fourth orbit out from the sun. That planet would be inhabited by Hux, who were very much like humans. 
They knew of the defeat and forced emigration of their fellow Hucks in other solar systems. They'd hidden from the humans, and it must have outraged their pride. So they must be ready to put up a desperate and fanatical fight if they were ever discovered. A salvage ship with two cops in it, and a dumpy salvage ship with fifteen more, did not make an impressive force to try to deal with a planetary population which bitterly hated humans. But the cops did not plan conquest. They were neither a fighting rescue expedition nor a punitive one. They were simply cops on assignment to get the semi-freighter Cerberus back in shape to travel on her lawful occasions among the stars and to see that she and her passengers and crew got to the destination for which they'd started. The cops' purpose was essentially routine, and the Hucks couldn't possibly imagine it. Sergeant Madden settled some things in his mind and dozed off again. When the squad ship came out of overdrive and he was awakened by the unpleasantness of breakout, he yawned. He looked on without comment as Patrolman Willis matter-of-factly performed the tricky task of determining the elliptic while a solar system sun was little more than a first-magnitude star. It was wholly improbable that anything like Huck patrol ships would be out so far. It was even more improbable that any kind of detection devices would be in operation. Any approaching ship could travel several times as fast as any signal. Patrolman Willis searched painstakingly. He found a planet which was a mere frozen lump of matter in vastness. It was white from a layer of frozen gases piled upon its more solid core. He made observations. I can find it again, sir, to meet the Aldeb. Orders, sir? Orders? demanded Sergeant Madden. What? Oh, head in toward the sun. The Hucks will be on planet three or four, most likely, and that's where they'll have the Cerberus. The squad ship continued sunward while Patrolman Willis continued his observations. A star picture along the elliptic, an hour's run on interplanetary drive, no overdrive field in use. Another picture. The two prints had only to be compared with a blinker for planets to stick out like sore thumbs, as contrasted with stars that showed no parallax. Cyrene 1, the innermost planet, was plainly close to a transit. 2 was away on the far side of its orbit. 3 was also on the far side. 4 was in quadrature. There was the usual gap where 5 should have been. 6? It didn't matter. They'd passed 7. They'd passed 8 a little while since, a ball of stone with a frigid gas ice covering. Patrolman Willis worked painstakingly with amplifiers on what oddments could be picked up in space. It's four, sir, he reported unnecessarily, because the sergeant had watched while he worked. They've got detectors out. I could just barely pick up the pulses, but by the time they've been reflected back, they'll be away below thermal noise volume. I don't think even multiples could pick them out. I'm saying, sir, that I don't think they can detect us at this distance. Sergeant Madden grunted. Do you think we came this far not to be noticed? He asked. But he was not peevish. Rather, he seemed more thoroughly awake than he'd been since the squad ship left the precinct substation back on Varanga 4. He rubbed his hands a little and stood up. Hold it a minute, Willis. He went back to the auxiliary equipment locker. He returned to his seat beside Patrolman Willis. He opened the breech of the ejector tube beside his chair. You've had street fighting training, 
he said almost affably. At the police academy. And siege of criminals' courses, too, eh? He did not wait for an answer. It's historic, he observed, that since time began, cops have been sticking out hats for crooks to shoot at, and that crooks have been shooting, thinking there were heads in them. He put a small object in the ejector tube, poked it to proper seating, and settled himself comfortably again. Can you make it to about a quarter million miles of four? He asked cheerfully. In one hop? Patrolman Willis set up the hop timer. Sergeant Madden was pleased that he aimed at the squad ship not exactly at the minute disk which was planet four of this system. It was prudence against the possibility of an error in the reading of distance. Ever use a marker, Willis? Patrolman Willis said, No, sir. Before he'd finished saying it, the squad ship had hopped into overdrive and out again. Sergeant Madden approved of the job. His son Timmy couldn't have done better. Here was Planet Four before them, a little off to one side, as was proper. They had run no risk of hitting an overdrive. The distance was just about a quarter million miles. If Krishnamurti's law, predicting the size and distance of planets in a Sol-type system, was reliable, the world was green and had ice caps. There should always be, in a system of this kind, at least one oxygen planet with a nearly Terran normal range of temperature. That usually meant green plants and an ocean or two. There wasn't quite as much sea as usual on this planet, and therefore there were some extensive yellow areas that must be desert. But it was a good, habitable world. Anybody whose home it was would defend it fiercely. Hmm, said Sergeant Madden. He took the ejector tube lanyard in his hand. He computed mentally. About a quarter million miles, say. A second and a half to alarm down below. Five seconds more to verification. Another five to believe it. Not less than twenty altogether to report and get authority to fire. The Hucks were a fighting race, and presumably organized, so they'd have a chain of command, and decisions would be made at the top. Army stuff, or navy. Not like the cops, where everybody knew both the immediate and final purposes of any operation in progress, and could act without waiting for orders. It should be not less than thirty seconds before a firing key made contact down below. As a matter of history, years ago the Hucks had used eighty gravity rockets with tracking heads and bust bombs on them. These hucks would hardly be behind the others in equipment. And back then, too, hucks kept their rocket missiles out in orbit where they could flare into 80G acceleration without wasting time getting out to where an enemy was. In their struggle against the cops two generations ago, the hucks had had to learn that fighting wasn't all drama and heroics. The cops had taken the glamour out when they won. So the hucks wouldn't waste time making fine gestures now. The squad ship had appeared off their planet. It had not transmitted a code identification signal the instant it came out of overdrive. The Hucks were hiding from the cops, so they'd shoot. Hop on past, commanded Sergeant Madden. The instant I jerk the ejector lanyard, don't fool around. Over the pole will do. Patrolman Willis set the hop timer. Twenty seconds, twenty-two, three, four, hop said Sergeant Madden. As he spoke, he jerked the lanyard. 
Before the syllable was finished, Patrolman Willis pushed hard on the overdrive button. There came the always nauseating sensation of going into overdrive, combined with the even more unpleasant sensation of coming out of it. The squad ship was somewhere else. A vast, curving whiteness hung catter-cornered in the sky. It was the planet's ice cap, upside down. Patrolman Willis had possibly cut it a trifle too fine. Right, said the sergeant comfortably. Now swing about to go back and meet the Aldeb. But wait. The stars and the monstrous white bull reeled in their positions as the ship turned. Sergeant Madden felt that he could spare seconds here. He ignored the polar regions of Cyrene Four, hanging upside down to rearward from the squad ship. Even a planetary alarm wouldn't get polar area observers set to fire in much less than forty seconds, and there'd have to be some lag in response to instrument reports. It wouldn't be as if trouble had been anticipated at just this time. The squad ship steadied. Sergeant Madden looked with pleasurable anticipation back to where the ship had come out of overdrive and lingered for twenty-four seconds. Willis had moved the squad ship from that position, but the sergeant had left a substitute. The small object he'd dropped from the ejector tube now swelled and writhed and struggled. In pure emptiness, a shape of metal foil inflated itself. It was surprisingly large, almost the size of the squad ship. But in emptiness, the fraction of a cubic inch of normal pressure gas would inflate a foil bag against no resistance at all. This flimsy shape even jerked into motion. Released gas poured out its back. There was no resistance to acceleration save mass, which was negligible. A sudden swirling cloud of vapor appeared where the squad ship's substitute went mindlessly on its way. The vapor rushed toward the space marker. A star appeared. It was a strictly temporary star, but even from a quarter-million-mile distance it was incredibly bright. It was a bomb, blasting a metal foil flimsy which the electronic brain of a missile rocket could only perceive as an unidentified and hence enemy object. Bomb and rocket and flimsy metal foil turned together to radioactive metal vapor. Sergeant Madden knew professional admiration. Thirty-four seconds, he said approvingly. The Hucks could not have expected the appearance of an enemy just here and now. It was the first such appearance in all the planet's history. They certainly looked for no consequences of the seizure of the Cerberus, carefully managed as that had been. So to detonate a bomb against an unexpected inimical object within thirty-four seconds after its appearance was very good work indeed. Hmm, said Sergeant Madden. We've nothing more to do right now, Willis. We'll go back to that hunk of ice you spotted coming in and wait for the Aldeb. Patrolman Willis obediently set the hop timer and swung the squad ship to a proper aiming. He pressed the overdrive button. His manner like that of Sergeant Madden, was the manner of someone conducting a perfectly routine operation. If my son Timmy were with me on this job, said Sergeant Madden, I'd point out the inner meaning of the way we're going about handling it. He reposed in his bucket seat in the squad ship, which at that moment lay aground not quite right side up, close to the north pole of Cyrene 8. The local sun was not in view. 
the squad ship's ports opened upon the incredible brilliance of the galaxy as seen out of the atmosphere. There was no atmosphere here. It was all frozen, but there was a horizon, and the light of the stars showed the miniature jungle of gas crystals. Frozen gases, frozen to gas ice. They were feathery. They were lacy. They were infinitely delicate. They were frost in three dimensions. Yes, sir, said Patrolman Willis. The Aldebs do soon, said Sergeant Madden, so I'll make it short. The whole thing is that we are cops and the Hucks are soldiers, which means that they're after feeling important, after glamour. Every one of them figures it's necessary to be important. He craves it. Patrolman Willis listened. He had a proximity detector out, which would pick up any radiation caused by the cutting of magnetic lines of force by any object. It made very tiny whining noises from time to time, if anything from a Huck missile rocket to the salvage ship Aldeb approached, however, the sound would be distinctive. Now that, said Sergeant Madden, is the same thing that makes delinks. A delink tries to matter in the world he lives in. It's a small world with only him and his close pals in it. So he struts before his pals. He don't realize that anybody but him and his pals are human, see? I know, said Patrolman Willis with an edge to his voice. Last month, a couple of delinks set a ground truck running downhill and jumped off it, and... True, said Sergeant Madden. He rumbled for a moment. Hmm, a soldier lives in a bigger world he tries to matter in. He's protecting that world and being admired for it. In old, old days, his world was maybe a day's march across. Later, it got to be continents. They tried to make it planets, but it didn't work. But there've got to be enemies to protect a world against, or a soldier isn't important. He's got no glamour. You see? Yes, sir, said Willis. Then there's us cops, said Sergeant Madden wryly. Mostly we join up for the glamour. We think it's important to be a cop. But presently, we find we ain't admired. Then there's no more glamour. But we're still important. A cop matters because he protects people against other people that want to do things to him. Against characters that want to get important by hurting him. Being a cop means you matter against all the delinks and crooks and fools and murderers who'd pull down civilization in a minute if they could, just so they could be important because they did it. But there's no glamour. We're not admired. We just do our job. And if I sound sentimental, I mean it. Yes, sir, said Willis. There's a big picture in the big hall in police headquarters on Valdez Three said the sergeant. It's the story of the cops from the early days when they wore helmets, and the days when they rode bicycles and when they drove ground cars. There's not only cops, but civilians in every one of the panels, Willis. And if you look careful, you'll see there's one civilian in every panel that's thumbing his nose at a cop. I've noticed, said Willis. Remember it, said Sergeant Madden. It bears on what we've got to do to handle these hucks. Soldiers couldn't do what we've got to. They'd fight to be admired. We can't. It'd spoil our job. We've got to persuade them to behave themselves. Then he frowned, as if he were dissatisfied with what he'd said. 
He shook his head and made an impatient gesture. No good, he said vexedly. You can't say it. Hmm. I'll nap a while until the all-dip gets here. He settled back to doze. Patrolman Willis regarded him with an odd expression. They were aground on Cyrene 8, on which no human ship had ever landed before them, and they had stirred up a hornet's nest on Cyrene 4, which had orbital 80G rocket missiles in orbit around it, with bust bomb heads and all the other advantages of civilization. The Aldeb was on the way with a 15-man crew, and 17 men together must pit themselves against an embattled planet with all its population ready and perhaps eager for war. Their errand was to secure the release of human prisoners and the surrender of a seized spaceship from a proud and desperate race. It did not look promising. Sergeant Madden did not look like the kind of genius who could carry it through. Dozing, with his chin tilted forward on his chest, he looked hopelessly commonplace. The skipper of the Aldeb came over to the squad ship because Sergeant Madden loathed spacesuits and there was no air on Cyrene 8. Patrolman Willis watched as the skipper came wading through the lacy, breast-high gas frost. It seemed a pity for such infinitely delicate and beautiful objects to be broken and crushed. The sergeant unlocked the lock door and spoke into a microphone when he heard the skipper stamping on the steel lock flooring. Brush yourself off, commanded the sergeant, and sweep the stuff outside. Part of it's methane, and there's some ammonia in those crystals. There was a suitable pause. The outer doors closed, the lock filled with air, and gas crystal fragments turned to reeking vapor as they warmed. The skipper bled them out and refilled the lock. Then he came inside. He opened his faceplate. Well, there's Hux here. Sergeant Madden told him. They're hair in a braid and all set to go. They popped off a marker I stuck out for them to shoot at in thirty-four seconds by the clock. <laughs> Bright boys, these hucks. They don't wait to ask questions. When they see something, they shoot at it. The skipper tilted back his helmet and said beseechingly, Scratch my head, will you? When Patrolman Willis reached out his hand, the skipper revolved his head under it until the itchy place was scratched. Most men itch instantly they are unable to scratch. The skipper's space gloves were sprouting whiskers of moisture frost now. Thanks, he said gratefully. What are you going to do, sergeant? Open communication with him, said the sergeant heavily. The skipper waited. Opening communication with someone who shoots on detector contact may be difficult. I figure, rumbled the sergeant, they're a lot like delinks. A cop can figure out how they think, but they can't figure out how a cop thinks. Such as, asked the skipper, they can't understand anybody not trying to be important, said Sergeant Madden. It baffles them. What's that got to do with the people on the Cerberus? demanded the skipper. It's our job to get them and the Cerberus back on the way to port. I know, conceded Sergeant Madden, and the girl my son Timmy's going to marry is one of them. But I don't think we'll have much trouble. 
Have you got any multi-poly plastic on the Aldeb? The skipper nodded blankly. Multi-poly plastic is a substance as anomalous as its name. It is a multiple polymer of something or other which stretches very accommodatingly to a surprising expanse and then suddenly stops stretching. When it stops, it has a high and obstinate tensile strength. All ships carry it for temporary repairs because it will seal off anything. A one mil thickness will hold 15 pounds pressure. Ships have been known to come down for landing with their bubbles of multipoly glistening out of holes in their hulls. A salvage ship especially would carry an ample supply. A minor convenience in its use is the fact that a detonator cap set off at any part of it starts a wave of disintegration which is too slow to be an explosion and cleans up the mess made in its application. Naturally, I've got it, said the skipper. What do you want with it? Sergeant Madden told him, painfully, painstakingly. The tough part, said the skipper, is making them go out an ejector tube. But I've got fourteen good men. Give me two hours for the first batch. We'll make up the second while you're placing them. Sergeant Madden nodded. The skipper went into the lock and closed the door behind him. After a moment, Patrolman Willis saw him wading through the incredibly delicate and fragile gas ice crystals. Then the Aldeb's lock swallowed him. The odd thing about the Huck business was the minute scale of the things that happened compared to the background in which they took place. The squad ship, for example, lifted off Cyrene 8 for the second time. She'd been out once and come back for the second batch of multi-poly objects. Cyrene 8 was not a giant planet by any means, but it was a respectable 6,000 miles in diameter. The squad ship's 60 feet of length was a moat so minute by comparison that no comparison was possible. She headed in toward the sun. She winked out of existence into overdrive. She headed toward Cyrene 4 in quadrature, where missile rockets floated in orbit, awaiting the coming of any enemy. The distance to be traveled was roughly one and a half light hours, some twelve astronomical units of ninety-three million miles each. The squad ship covered that distance in a negligible length of time. It popped into normality about two hundred thousand miles out from the Huck homeworld, it seemed insolently to remain there. In a matter of seconds, it appeared at another place, a hundred fifty thousand miles out, but off to one side. It seemed arrogantly to remain there, too, in a second place at the same time. Then it appeared, with the arbitrary effect a ship does give when coming out of overdrive, at a third place a hundred seventy-five thousand miles from the planet. At a fourth place, barely 80,000 miles short of collision with the Huck world. At a fifth place. A sixth. Each time it appeared, it seemed to remain in plain, challenging, insolent view, without ceasing to exist at the spots where it had appeared previously. In much less than a minute, the seeming of a sizable squadron of small human ships had popped out of emptiness and lay off the Huck home world at distances ranging from 80,000 miles to three times as much. Suddenly light flashed intolerably in emptiness. It was in contact with one of the seeming squad ships, which ceased to be. 
but immediately two more ships appeared at widely different spots. A second flash, giant and terrible nearby, a pinpoint of light among the stars. Another ostensible human ship vanished in atomic flame, but still another appeared magically from nowhere. A third, and then a fourth flash, three more within successive seconds. Squad ships continued to appear as if by necromancy, and space near the planet was streaked by flarings of white vapor as 80G rockets hurled themselves to destruction against the invading objects. As each bomb went off, its light was brighter than the sun, but each was a mere flicker in enormousness. They flashed and flashed, each bomb turning 40 kilograms of matter into pure, raw, raging destruction— Each was devastation sufficient to destroy the greatest city the galaxy ever knew. But in that appalling emptiness, they were mere scintillations. In the background of a solar system's vastness, they made all the doings of men and hucks alike seem ludicrous. For a long time, perhaps five minutes, perhaps ten, The flashings, which were the most terrible of all weapons, continued. Each flash destroyed something which, in scale, was less than a dust moat. But more moats appeared, and more, and more, and more. And presently the flashes grew infrequent. The threads of vapor which led to each grew longer. In a little while they came from halfway around the planet— Then squad ships appeared even there, and immediately pinpoints of intolerable brilliance destroyed them, yet never as fast as they appeared. Finally, there came ten seconds in which no atomic flame ravened in emptiness. One more glitter, fifteen seconds, twenty, thirty seconds without a flashing of atomic explosive. The surviving objects, which appeared to be squad ships, hung in space. They moved without a plan. They swam through space without destination. Presently, the most unobservant of watches must have perceived that their movement was random, that they were not driven, that they had no purpose, that they were not squad ships but targets, and not even robot targets, set out for the missile rockets of the Huck planet to expend themselves on. The missile rockets had expended themselves. So, Sergeant Madden opened communication with the Hux. These Hux, observed Sergeant Madden, as the squad ship descended to the Huck planet's surface. They must have had a share in the scrapping eighty years ago. They've got everything the old-time Hux had. They've even got recordings of human talk from civilian human prisoners of years gone by, and they kept somebody able to talk it, for when they fought with us. Patrolman Willis did not answer. He had a strange expression on his face. At the moment, they were already within the Huck home planet's atmosphere. From time to time, a heavily accented voice gave curt instructions. It was a Huck voice, telling Patrolman Willis how to guide the squad ship to ground where, under truce, Sergeant Madden might hold conference with Huck authorities. Hold the course, said the voice. That is right. Do as you are. The horizon had ceased to be curved minutes ago. 
Now the ground rose gradually. The ground was green. Large green growths clustered off to one side of the flat area where the ship was to alight. They were the equivalent of trees on this planet. Undoubtedly, there were equivalents of grass and shrubs and seed-bearing and root-propagating vegetation, and hucks would make use of some of the seeds and roots for food. Because, in order to have a civilization, one has to have a larger food supply than can be provided by even the thriftiest of grazing animals. But the hucks or their ancestors would need to have been flesh-eaters also, for brains to be useful in hunting, and therefore for mental activity to be recognized as useful. A vegetarian community can maintain a civilization, but it has to start off on meat. A clump of ground cars waited for the squad ship's landing. The ship touched delicately. Sergeant Madden rumbled and got out of his chair. Patrolman Willis looked at him uneasily. Huh, said Sergeant Madden. Of course you can come. You want them to think we're bluffing? No. Nothing to fight with. The Hucks think our fleet's set to do the fighting. He undogged the exit door and went out through the small vestibule, which was also the ship's airlock. Patrolman Willis joined him out of doors. The air was fresh. The sky was blue. Clouds floated in the sky and growing things gave off a not unpleasant odor, and a breeze blew uncertainly. But such things happen on appropriate planets in most Sol-type solar systems. Hucks came toward them, stiffly, defiantly. The most conspicuous difference between Hucks and humans was of degree. Hucks grew hair all over their heads, instead of only parts of it. But they wore garments, and some of the garments were identical and impressive, so they could be guessed to be uniforms. How do? said the voice that had guided the ship down. We are ready to listen to your message. Sergeant Madden said heavily, We humans believe you hucks have got a good fleet. We believe you've got a good army. We know you've got good rockets and a fighting force that's worth a lot to us. We want to make a treaty for you to take over and to defend as much territory as you're able to against some characters heading this way from the Colsack region. Silence. The interpreter translated, and the Hucks muttered astonishedly among themselves. The interpreter received instructions. Do you mean others of our race? he demanded haughtily. Members of our own race who return to recover their home worlds from humans? Hell no, said Sergeant Madden dourly. If you can get in contact with them and bring them back, they can have their former planets back and more besides, if they'll defend them. We're stretched thin. We didn't come here to fight your fleet. We came to ask it to join us. More mutterings. The interpreter faced about. This surprises us, he said darkly. We know of no danger in the direction you speak of. Perhaps we would wish to make friends with that danger instead of you. Sergeant Madden snorted. <laughs> you're welcome. Then he said sardonically, If you're able to reach us after you try, the offer stands. Join us, and you'll give your own commands and make your own decisions. 
will cooperate with you, but you won't make friends with the characters I'm talking about. Not hardly. More hurried discussions still. The interpreter defiantly, And if we refuse to join you? Sergeant Madden shrugged. Nothing. You'll fight on your own, anyhow. So will we. If we joined up, we could both fight better. I came to try to arrange so we'd both be stronger. We need you. You need us. There was a pause. Patrolman Willis swallowed. At five million mile intervals, in a circle fifty million miles across, with the Huck world as its center, objects floated in space. Patrolman Willis knew about them because he and Sergeant Madden had put them there immediately after the missile rockets ceased to explode. He knew what they were, and his spine crawled at the thought of what would happen if the Hucks found out. But the distant objects were at the limit of a certain range for detection devices. The planet's instruments could just barely pick them up. They subtended so small a fraction of a thousandth of a second of arc that no information could be had about them. But they acted like a monstrous space fleet, ready to pour down war-headed missiles in such numbers as to smother the planet in atomic flame. Patrolman Willis could not imagine admitting that such a supposed fleet needed another fleet to help it. A military man, bluffing as Sergeant Madden bluffed, would not have dared offered any terms less onerous than abject surrender. But Sergeant Madden was a cop. It was not his purpose to make anybody surrender. His job was, ultimately, to make them behave. The Hucks conferred. The conference was lengthy. The interpreter turned to Sergeant Madden and spoke with vast dignity and caginess. When do you require an answer? We don't, grunted Sergeant Madden. When you make up your minds, send a ship to Varenga 3. We'll give you the information we've got. That's whether you fight with us or independent. You'll fight once you meet these characters. We don't worry about that. Just, we can do better together. Then he said, Have you got the coordinates for Varenga? I don't know what you call it in your language. We have them, said the interpreter, still suspiciously. Right, said Sergeant Madden. That's all. We came here to tell you this. Let us know when you make up your minds. Now we'll go back. He turned as if to trudge back to the squad ship. And this, of course, was the moment when the difference between a military and a cop mind was greatest. A military man with the defenses of the planet smashed, or exhausted, and an apparent overwhelming force behind him would have tried to get the Cerberus and its company turned over to him, either by implied or explicit threats. Sergeant Madden did not mention them. But he had made it necessary for the Hucks to do something. They'd been shocked to numbness by the discovery that humans knew of their presence on Cyrene 4. They'd been made aghast by the brisk and competent nullification of their ADG rocket defenses. They'd been appalled by the appearance of a space fleet which, if it had been a space fleet, could have blasted the planet to a cinder. And then they were bewildered that the humans asked no submission 
not even promises from them. There was only one conclusion to be drawn. It was that if the humans were willing to be friendly, it would be a good idea to agree. Another idea followed. A grand gesture by Hux would be an even better idea. Wait, said the interpreter. He turned. A momentary further discussion among the Hux. The interpreter turned back. There is a ship here, he said uneasily. It is a human ship. There are humans in it. The ship is disabled. Sergeant Madden affected surprise. Yeah? How come? It arrived two days ago, said the interpreter. Then he plunged. We brought it. We have a mine on what you call Prorosirontheri. The human ship landed because it was disabled. It discovered our ship and our mine there. We wished to keep the mine secret. Because the humans had found out our secret, we brought them here. And the ship, it is disabled. Hmm, said Sergeant Madden. I'll send a repair boat down to fix whatever's the matter with it. Of course you won't mind. He turned away and turned back. One of the systems we'd like you to take over and defend, he observed, is Proceron. I haven't a list of the others, but when your ship comes over to Varenga, it'll be ready. Talk our repair boat down, will you? We'd appreciate anything you can do to help get the ship back out in space with its passengers, but our repair boat can manage. He waved his hand negligently and went back to the squad ship. He got in. Patrolman Willis followed him. Take her up, said Sergeant Madden. The squad ship fell toward the sky. Sergeant Madden said satisfiedly, That went off pretty good. From now on, it's just routine. There was a bubble in emptiness. It was a large bubble, as such things go. It was nearly a thousand feet in diameter, and it was made of multi-polyplastic, which is nearly as anomalous as its name. The bubble contained almost an ounce of helium. It had a three-inch small box at one point on its surface. It floated some twenty-five million miles from the Huck planet, and five million miles from another bubble which was its identical twin. It could reflect detector pulses. In so doing, it impersonated a giant fighting ship. Something like an hour after the squad ship rose from Cyrene 4, a detonator cap exploded in the three-inch box. It tore the box to atoms and initiated a wave of disintegration in the plastic of the bubble. The helium bubble content escaped and was lost. The plastic itself turned to gas and disappeared. The bubble had been capable of exactly two actions. It could reflect detector pulses. In doing so, it had impersonated a giant fighting ship, member of an irresistible fleet. It could also destroy itself. In so doing, it impersonated a giant fighting ship, one of a fleet going into overdrive. In rapid succession, all the bubbles which were members of a non-existent fighting fleet winked out of existence about Cyrene 4. 
There were a great many of them, and no trace of any remained. The last was long gone when a small salvage ship descended to the Huck home planet. A heavily accented voice talked it down. The salvage ship landed amid evidences of cordiality. The Hucks were extremely cooperative. They even supplied materials for the repair job on the Cerberus, including landing rockets to be used in case of need. But they weren't needed for takeoff. The Cerberus had been landed at a Huck spaceport, which obligingly lifted it out to space again when its drive had been replaced. And the squad ship sped through emptiness at a not easily believable multiple of the speed of light. Sergeant Madden dozed while Patrolman Willis performed such actions as were necessary for the progress of the ship. They were very few, but Patrolman Willis thought feverishly. After a long time, Sergeant Madden waked and blinked and looked benignly at Patrolman Willis. You'll be back with your wife soon, Willis, he said encouragingly. Yes, sir. Then the patrolman said explosively, Sergeant, there's nothing coming from the coal sack way. There's nothing for the Hucks to fight. True at the moment, admitted Sergeant Madden. But something could come. Not likely, but you see, Willis, the Hucks have had armed forces for a long time. They've glamour. They're not ready to cut down and have only cops like us humans. It wouldn't be reasonable to tell them the truth, that there's no need for their fighting men. They'd make a need, so they'll stand guard happily against some kind of monstrosities we'll have special cases invent for them. They'll stand guard zestful for years and years. <laughs> Didn't they do the same against us? But now they're proud that even we humans, that they were scared of, ask them to help us. So presently they'll send some hucks over to go through police academy, and then presently there'll be a sub-precinct station over there with hucks in charge, and why, that'll be that. But they want planets, Sergeant Madden shrugged. There's plenty, Willis. The guess is 6,000 million planets fit for humans in this galaxy, and by the time we've used them up, somebody will have worked out a drive to take us to the next galaxy to start all over. There's no need to worry about that. And for immediate, does it occur to you how many men are going to start getting rich because there's a brand new planet that's got a lot of things we humans would like to have and wants to buy a lot of things the Hucks haven't got? Patrolman Willis subsided. But presently he said, Sergeant, what did you have done if they hadn't told you about the Cerberus? Sergeant Madden snorted. <laughs> it's unthinkable we waltzed in there and told them a tale and showed every sign of walking right out again without asking them a thing. They couldn't even tell us to go to hell because it looked like we didn't care what they said. It was insupportable, Willis. Characters that make trouble, Willis, do it to feel important and we'd left them without a thing to tell us that was important enough to mention, unless they told us about the Cerberus. We had them baffled. They needed to say something, and that was the only thing they could say. He yawned. Oh, the Aldeb reports everybody on the Cerberus safe and sound, only frightened, and the skipper said Timmy's girl was less scared than most. I'm pleased. 
Timmy's getting married, and I wouldn't want my grandchildren to have a scary mother. He looked at the squad ship's instruments. There was a long way yet to travel. <sighs> it's a dull business, this overdrive, he said somnolently. And it's amazing how much a man can sleep when everything's in hand and there's nothing ahead but a wedding and a few things like that. Just routine, Willis. Just routine. He settled himself more comfortably as the squad ship went on home. All right, nothing to see here. Move along. Everything's normal. <laughs> I really did love that story of the continual pointing out, here's what the military would have done, but you know, a cop is going to handle it like this. Very sensible. <laughs> and the way the Hucks were thinking, wait, wait, don't leave. Um, We need to tell you this. That outsmarting was perfect. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And I don't have much else to say. We are moving offices in a couple of days, and we're moving half our stuff to a new office and half of our stuff home because Tom will be working from home part-time and then up in our office part-time, and I'll be working from home all the time, and I'm super excited about it. It's either going to be wonderful or horrible. I'm hoping for wonderful. Anyway... So what that means is we're having to shift around all that junk that sits around in an office, in a home, in extra bedrooms, all those sort of things, until you're forced to move them. So we're having a good cleaning out, but it does mean a lot of extra time is being spent on it. So that's what I've been doing with my time. I am going to start putting a book up here from LibriVox. One person said, please make sure they're a good reader and not somebody with an accent who can't pronounce the words, no problem, American style. <laughs> or maybe if the book I pick is British, British style. Anyway, it's going to be somebody who I want to listen to the book again myself. So don't worry. I haven't quite decided what yet. A lot of it depends on what book I want to read for you next myself, because while these LibriVox episodes are going up. I'm going to be in the background finding time to record what I want to read. And I don't want to slam you with two pulp science fictions in a row or that kind of thing. So it will be something designed to contrast with it. It'll be a wonderful surprise, won't it? It will also mean I can probably do much more regular episodes. Some people care, some people don't but I kind of like being able to get those podcasts out to you that I've been listening to. As I said, after going from not having many, I suddenly have an embarrassment of riches. And that will not only let you get a regular story, but I'll be able to send you some other directions that I think you'll enjoy. Anyway, if you have any input on a story you'd like to hear, whether from me or from LibriVox or anything, just leave me a note. You can write to me at the blog for the podcast, which is hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com. You can send me an email at julie, J-U-L-I-E, at glyphnet, G-L-Y-P-H-N-E-T.com. Or you can leave a review at iTunes. Now, that's just going to be to give general feedback. Hopefully wonderful feedback, but you know, I can take the tough stuff too. 
that's not the place to ask for new stories. But I do love to read those reviews, and they are there to help encourage other people who might want to give it a try. So, you can just search for me at iTunes. I pop right up. Forgotten Classics. And I guess that's it. Except for saying thank you for coming by to listen, because if not for you, I wouldn't be interested in sharing all these stories. And obviously, I love it since I couldn't quit when I tried a while back. So, I have you to thank for my addiction. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Have a great week, everyone, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.